Hello and welcome to this Care Leaders Network podcast. My name is Simon Parker and I'm the founder and chief executive of CLN. And I'm welcomed here today by Kreshnik Hoti from Paincheck. Uh, great to have you on the podcast today, Kreshnik. Uh, we've got a big and important topic to uh, to talk about. Do you want to just start off by giving people a bit of an introduction into you, your background and uh, a little bit about Paincheck as well? Um Hi, Simon. It's nice to be here. Uh, so my name is Kreznik. I'm from Paincheck. I'm a, a senior, I'm a co-founder and a senior research scientist at uh, at Paincheck. And uh, my other role is I'm an, I'm an academic. So I'm a, a professor in pharmacy at the University of Pristina. And I'm an as, a university associate at Curtin University uh, in, uh, in, in Australia. So that's, that's my background. Otherwise, uh, I'm I'm specialized in medication reviews, so my my background is in pharmacy. I'm a pharmacist, and I've done a lot of uh, medication reviews in in geriatric setting, uh, community as well as uh, aged care settings, uh, institutionalized. So uh, that's that's in 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 Western Australia, where I've reviewed quite a lot of uh, medications, uh, including uh, obviously medications in people living with dementia there. And I'm from Paincheck, as you know. Paincheck is uh, uh, the vision and, and mission is to really uh, improve how pain is identified and therefore managed. And and uh, by doing that, we we strive to sort of ensure that no one uh, silently suffers uh, from pain. So that's 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 our key uh, mission. So that's briefly about myself. Perfect. Thank you for uh, for that. So the. The, the, the title that we agreed for today's conversation is why we should focus on pain when addressing, and we put it in quote marks, challenging behavior. Even the terminology around challenging behavior is something that's, uh, that's actually being challenged at the, uh, at the moment. Um, but I guess put, put that into, into context for us because it's a, it's a super important topic, but I think it makes sense to be able to set the context for today's conversation as well. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's a good point, Simon. Now, uh, obviously, uh, uh, challenging behaviors are, are quite problematic. But before we we go into the specifics, I mean, we can talk about the language which is used to really uh, describe these uh, behavioral symptoms in people living with dementia. And I think that's that's really really important. The way we talk about in dementia is quite uh, uh, important. I mean. The way we talk about dementia in general, but also when when it comes to behavioral uh, symptoms, it's very important uh, to to uh, to use uh, uh, positive language, the right language, because that can obviously have a direct uh, effect on how people living with uh, dementia feel as well. Now um, uh, we we are in the clinical context. We are uh, very well. Uh, familiar, I guess, with uh, the terminology that's called uh, behavioral and psychological symptoms of dementia, otherwise known as BPSD, which, as I said, is 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 a, a term commonly used in the clinical uh, context. I think this is quite a medicalized uh, uh, terminology as well, from from that perspective. Uh, obviously, uh, people living with the dementia uh, are in positions or settings that are outside of the clinical uh, context. And uh, that's why uh, there are a number of other terms that describe uh, behaviors that are basically challenging in this population group. And according to Alzheimer's society, uh, there are a number of these terms, and, and they include terms like changes in behavior, changes uh, challenging in, uh, behaviors, behaviors that challenge symptoms of distress or distressed behaviors, uh, 
and and, and so on. So uh, these are all uh, terms that are used to uh, uh, describe what what you just mentioned. You know, uh, uh, challenging behaviors, but we shouldn't really use terms like difficult behaviors or or being difficult. That's what the Alzheimer's Society uh, also uh, uh, recommends in order to uh, use positive language. Uh, uh, in in dementia, also what's what's really interesting, what's been happening in um, in, in in this area is the fact that there's there's slightly a shift from uh, you know moving away from strict terminology, for example, of using challenging behavior, uh, because uh, sometimes it can or or at least use this too much, because uh, sometimes this uh, puts an emphasis on on what is our experience or carer's experience with these behaviors. And uh, that is why terms such as distress behaviors nowadays, they're being used increasingly more uh, because uh, obviously, first of all, often these behaviors are caused by distress. And also a terminology like that puts an emphasis on how the person is experiencing these symptoms and basically what's going on with them. Uh, so uh, this, from the terminology uh, perspective, I, I believe, uh, delivers more or assists, facilitates that uh, person-centered care, if you want. So here in this in this context, the person uh, living with dementia is at at the center. So that's uh, that's in terms of terminology. <laughs> sure, no, and that makes makes, makes total, total total sense. I think there's a there's a real big shift in the uh, in the social care world in the uh, in the UK at the moment, which is one of shifting from a compliance mindset through to a quality of life mindset, uh, and it's underpinned by, uh, of course, person centered care. But it's almost like the uh, the the kind of um, almost like the philosophy of the care organisations, what kind of language they use, and things like that, to be able to compliance is important. You need to kind of tick that box and make sure that those things are kind of squared away. But ultimately, in in the world of care, you're looking after you're looking after people, and I think that challenging behaviour, um, both the phraseology and the mindset that sits behind that, seems somewhat uh, old hat. So the fact that we're distri- uh, we're, we're now uh, re reframing that almost in the context of uh, distress behavior again it's looking down the 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 the, the lens or looking through the, the uh, looking through the context of, of it being a more person-centered description because the person nobody wants to have quote unquote challenging behavior you know we've all maybe, maybe all had a bad day where we've shouted at, 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 at a loved one or one of those similar sets of sets of circumstances you, you don't feel good being in that set of circumstances so to be then labeled as being challenging that's that's not going to add anything to the set of circumstances so being more compassionate in the way that we describe people's life experiences i think is a is a really really powerful thing to do and it and it links so beautifully with the with the conversation that we're having to uh today around uh helping understand people who are are, are, are living with dementia people who are experiencing pain and helping them to uh, to to be able to make sure that their again their life experience is the best that it best that it po- po- possibly can be because it's one thing if you're if you're in pain and you're uh, you're you're able to communicate that pain to somebody to be able to to remedy it in some way shape or form but if you can't do that you're 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 quite li- literally suffering in silence so really excited to get into the conversations around this today so let, let, let's start with my first question so what's the What's the relationship between pain and behavioral and psychological symptoms of dementia? 
Well, um, uh, Simon, uh, behavioral or emotional state changes are are very common in, in dementia, and they they include various changes such as aggression, agitation, shouting, and so on. Um, when it comes to BPSD, they also include uh, uh, issues such as apathy, depression, and so on. Now, what the literature uh, data suggests is that over 90% of people that live with dementia, at some point, they uh, experience uh, uh, BPSD. So uh, the, the problem when it comes to pain is that these symptoms are actually often caused by pain. Obviously, there's other uh, reasons, causes, uh, for these symptoms, not just pain, uh, including their anxiety, various frustration, living alone, etc. Uh, nonetheless, these changes in behavioral or emotional state, they reflect a physical or emotional need, or basically a feeling, uh, which otherwise they're not able to communicate. So, and and often these uh, these uh, these behaviors can be quite uh, distressing, not just for them, but for 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 the carers as well. Uh, they're very challenging for the person that experiences them, but also challenging in terms of identifying what 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 is causing them. This is this is the link with pain and 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 when it comes to behavioral symptoms uh, in in dementia because uh pain is also very prevalent in aged care setting in general now various um various data suggest that over 90% of of residents living in aged care at some point experience pain and uh around 50% of them have pain most of the time now uh also various studies um uh, suggest or indicate that up to 50% of people living with dementia, they regularly suffer from a degree of pain. Now, this 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 is a problem because we really uh, need to uh, we really need need to make sure uh, that uh, basically we're able to identify uh, pain in this uh, uh, in this population group. Uh, we also have research that suggests that 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 puts a direct link towards the levels of pain as well as the the degree of severity of these behaviors. It's interesting because uh, uh, according to this research. Uh, people uh, that are in pain uh, can 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 have a 3.8 times fold increase in the likelihood of these symptoms being experienced. Uh, that's 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 quite significant, uh, Simon. But also the severity of these symptoms is higher in this in this in this group. So people who who are in pain and their pain uh, their pain level is higher, the 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 severity of behaviors is higher as well, and this causes significant distress for not just just for uh, 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 the person with, with dementia, but also uh, to caregivers as well. And uh, according to this research, uh, over 30%, that's over 30% more distress to, to, to caregivers. So there's clearly, there's clearly a link between pain uh, and dementia, especially when it comes to behavioral symptoms. And we really need to make sure that we identify pain properly so we don't leave pain as a cause of behavioral symptoms, which is not being identified and therefore treated. I think this is the key uh, link that we need to uh, uh, focus and, and resolve, really. And talk to me about why pain is difficult to identify in people who are unable to reliably verbally communicate. 
Yeah, well, that's 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 a great question. Now, there are a number of challenges when it comes to pain identification in, in people living with uh, dementia. Uh, firstly, we know that uh, people uh, uh, living with dementia, they progressively lose the ability to communicate. That's uh, including uh, communicating uh, pain. Uh, so basically, they lose their ability to self-report pain. And we know that verbal self-reporting is basically the primary uh, method or the um, uh, uh, golden standard by which we uh, communicate uh, uh, pain. Uh, we also uh, learn to uh, uh, self-express our pain. Uh, therefore, these abilities, these behaviors are slowly and progressively lost. So the biggest challenge is this. So the fact that uh, people with dementia, especially those with advanced dementia, they're unable to communicate pain and therefore self-report. This is this is the key difficulty. Uh, then obviously uh, people uh, with dementia, they also tend to lose their ability to regulate their uh, already learned responses to pain, especially as their condition progresses. Uh, when we are uh, children, uh, as individuals, we learn to suppress the urge of cry or shout when whenever we experience pain. And uh, this is lost uh, due to progress of dementia. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the, the, the way we, we treat these behaviors, we respond uh, to pain is, is basically uh, gradually uh, diminished and lost. Then we have the, the issue of subjectivity of pain itself, uh, uh, which also applies here. Here. And there's a lack of uh, documentation of, of pain. This is another uh, big problem in, in the area. There's studies that uh, suggests that um, uh, basically we need better documentation. Uh, nearly one third of residents have no documentation of pain and how it was identified. So that that's an issue. And uh, uh, these studies, the literature, various literature data out there uh, recommend incorporating uh, uh, plans or incorporating proper documentation of, of pain, of how pain is identified and therefore how it's treated. If we don't have a good documentation of pain, our management, uh, firstly, our identification, but also management of pain in general is not going to be uh, optimal. Then another another issue uh, specifically in, in dementia and what the, again, studies suggest is that over 40% of care professionals receive no training on how to assess pain in someone with dementia. There are, because they, they obviously lose the uh, ability to self-report, that also means that uh, the pain assessment needs to be multidimensional. So you need to assess their face, their, their facial expressions, their vocalizations, behaviors, body movement, etc. So there's some skills involved in, in that. And uh, over 40% of care professionals, as I mentioned before, uh, 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 report that they've received no training on how to assess pain. This makes, this makes identification of, of pain in people living with dementia more difficult. So, and uh, this, this is a problem that also uh, uh, needs to be addressed in order to us properly first identify and therefore treat uh, pain, Simon. Great, thanks for explaining that. One of the things that I was thinking about whilst we were discussing that, um, that, 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 that came to mind. So, um, Obviously, there's a there's there's a, a a lot of debate around the use of antipsychotic drugs, uh, particularly for people living with dementia. Uh, it seems to be the the tide seems to be turning on uh, the, mm. the how people are prescribing 
antipsychotic medication and other medication as well for people living with dementia. Um, and I guess this links back to this, to, to, to the point around pain. So to, to what degree does an identified pain lead to uh, inappropriate uh, prescribing, would you say? Well, um, uh, Simon, that's a great question. I mean, the, uh, the the difficulty or the challenges in identifying pain, we know that that's associated more with inappropriate treatment of pain in general. So that's what the uh, literature uh, uh, data suggests. So this is this is really a big issue. I mean, I remember back back in the days when I was reviewing medication medications in Western Australian uh, 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 nursing homes, and you could just see, for example, PRN or when required medications that were not being used, pain medications not being used on when required basis. Uh, on the other side, you had all these antipsychotics that were being prescribed. And you would wonder, well, how come these are not being used at all? How come there's no pain? But then you have these behaviors and these antipsychotics are being used. So we slowly started to you know, make that link. And this is how basically also pain check the, the initially the 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 idea on, on on doing something about pain uh this 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 came through this sort of clinical practice experience so it is a big issue because as as i mentioned before uh, behavioral symptoms when they are identified they're troublesome for residents they're distressing for carers as well but uh the underlying cause which is pain sometimes and oftentimes is not identified so what what happens is that we we tend to treat the uh the uh the 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 actual behaviors with antipsychotics but not the underlying cause or what's causing these uh, uh, behaviors. And in fact, we have some evidence uh, from, from the UK, uh, actually, that uh, suggests that this leads to, the, there's a lot of uh, prescribing of antipsychotic, antipsychotics in the UK uh, in uh, alone, uh, especially in, in dementia. There's, uh, according to Department of Health here, there's about 180,000 prescriptions of, of, of antipsychotics that, uh, that are uh, uh, prescribed um, approximately in, in ASK setting. And uh, uh, again, according to uh, Department of Health, about 80% of these prescriptions are prescribed, uh, prescriptions for antipsychotics are, are prescribed inadequately. So this is, this is a big uh, uh, issue, uh, Simon, because obviously if we don't identify pain, we're not going to treat it. But pain leading to that uh, that behavioral and emotional change that I mentioned before, uh, due to inability to communicate what we need, uh, uh, is causing these uh, challenging behaviors, and and then we simply tend to treat those challenging behaviors with uh, antipsychotics, and 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 we should we should shift move away from that as much as possible. So we should really identify that pain if pain is the key reason for those uh, challenging behaviors. And like that, we will reduce the an inappropriate prescribing of antipsychotics because antipsychotics, uh, they have problems. Uh, first of all, they even when they're prescribed, according to all the guidelines, they, they should be in dementia, they should be prescribed uh, for a very short uh, uh, duration of time. Uh, they have a lot of side effects. Uh, the side effect profile for them, for them is, not, is not good. Uh, therefore, we should uh, really uh, uh, minimize the use of these uh, inappropriately prescribed antipsychotics. 80%, I can't get over that number, 80% yeah. appropriately prescribed. That's a, that's a, that's a, an astonishing and kind of terrifying number, you know, to, 
to to think that it's it it's being done uh incorrectly more often than not is uh that's that that's not a great not a great set of circumstances by by any stretch absolutely okay so um what i guess are the what's the impact of unrecognized pain on people living in care settings and then also the care teams themselves as well because it's uh, obviously it's it's something that if the, the the person living in the care setting is is having um uh uh, uh the the having the pain experience however that kind of manifests itself if they are <clears throat> uh, expressing distressed uh, uh, behaviors, then that's obviously going to have an impact on the people around them. So talk, talk to me about that point as well, because I can imagine that's quite significant yeah. given what we're talking about. Absolutely. Well, recognizing pain, as I believe I've, I've outlined until now, is very uh, important. In fact, first of all, pain management is now a recognized uh, fundamental human right. So, and in order to uh, uh, manage pain and therefore fulfill this uh, fundamental human right, you first need to identify pain. And when we say identify, I think that includes its severity as well. Um, Ascertaining what is the severity of pain is just as important as identifying pain, in my opinion, because uh, once you identify pain, the the uh, having an indication on on the severity of of that pain uh, guides us very much in terms of clinical decision making of how are we going to make an intervention what sort of intervention are we going to make etc you're not going to treat mild pain in the same way as you would treat a severe pain so when we recognize pain obviously that's important but we also need to ensure that we uh, we we identify the right category the right level of pain. And uh, uh, obviously the key problem of unrecognized pain is the fact that uh, someone, for example, that lives with dementia, if they have pain that is unrecognized, then basically they suffer silently in pain. And that's what we don't want to happen. Uh, we can imagine a case, which I'm sure for many carers out there listening and clinicians as well uh, would agree is quite prevalent in, in practice. For example, you have a 70 year old person diagnosed with advanced dementia. They experience increasing agitation, confusion, as well as other behaviors of concern or unmet needs. Uh, then you'll see that you know that he has a long history of uh, generalized osteoarthritis. Carers, family suspect they're in pain. They're unable to tell them. So this goal goes on and on in circles. So this is this is a very common example, Simon, occurring on a pretty much daily basis in various practice settings. So we need to ensure that these cases are dealt with appropriately and treated in a timely and efficient manner uh, to basically prevent all the subsequent uh, complications of unrecognized pain. Uh, as mentioned before, pain is linked with uh, behavioral uh, symptoms, BPSD, or challenging behaviors as well. And the higher level of pain is associated with increased severity of these behaviors. This is very important because as I mentioned, it uh, uh, results in, a, in an appropriate prescribing of antipsychotics, which also has an economic uh, uh, impact as well, in addition to all the side effects. Um, but there are other reasons why we need to make sure that pain does not go unrecognized. There's more evidence uh, emerging to support this. For example, uh, people with chronic pain may be more susceptible with COVID-19. 
to COVID-19, uh, particularly older people with multi uh, comorbidities. And we we know that generally people uh, living with dementia also fit in this category. And we know that there's an association between pain and impaired immunity. So the, the longer you leave pain unrecognized, untreated, that's going to affect their immunity, uh, lead to infections, uh, etc. There was an interesting uh, uh, article uh, recently that was uh, uh, published uh, where uh, researchers explored the association between widespread pain and dementia, as well as uh, uh, particularly Alzheimer's disease and, and stroke. This was the uh, Framingham Heart Study, uh, where uh, widespread pain is 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 basically, uh, uh, as you know, a common subtype of chronic pain, uh, often uh, linked with uh, musculoskeletal disorders. They had three groups in this study: those with widespread pain, uh, those who had other pain, and those who had no pain whatsoever. And they were monitored. Uh, 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 continuously uh, from the beginning of their cognitive decline, as well as uh, for clinical dementia as well. They were monitored for 10 years. They were monitored for stroke as well. So what they found was quite astonishing, I believe, because widespread pain, which they defined as pain above and below the waist on both sides of the body and skull, uh, as well as backbone and ribs, uh, what they uh, what they uh, uh, found was that widespread pain was associated with an increase by 43% in all-cause dementia risk. So that's quite significant. Uh, it was alone, this pain was also uh, associated with uh, a 47% increase in Alzheimer's disease. And there was nearly 30% uh, increase in the risk of stroke. So this is quite significant. So obviously, we need to make sure that we don't leave this pain unrecognized in this in this uh, uh, population group. And interesting, this 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 these findings are were independent of age, uh, the socioeconomic factors, the the, the health status, behaviors, uh, gender, etc. So uh, uh, that's that's something to have in mind. So there's multiple reasons why we shouldn't leave uh, pain unrecognized. And as I mentioned before, the uh, pain in in, in in a person living with dementia, it causes more distress to caregivers as well, in addition to uh, affecting the person uh, themselves. Uh, the, the, the study which was recently conducted in Australia found uh, around 31% more distress to caregivers in the pain group uh, category. So, uh, and we know other uh, clinical issues, uh, including implications of, of, of pain and challenging behaviors, for example, uh, staffing issues, issues with safeguarding, et cetera. So these are all, uh, Simon, very compelling reasons why we should not leave pain unrecognized, uh, in, especially in those unable to communicate, such as uh, people living with dementia. Uh, because if we don't recognize or identify pain, uh, we're not going to uh, properly manage pain. There's so many implications, isn't there? The, 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 there's the, the direct implications of pain, but then there's so many. Uh, it's almost like it um, proliferates through the experience of the person and then the people around them. Uh, the, 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 uh, you've got the 
misprescription of drugs. You've then got the cost impact of all of that. It's quite, it's really, really quite wide reaching once you start to get under the under the surface of it. Now, I mean, oh. you've had some really, really useful in, insights for for today. But um, if if there was one thing care providers could do tomorrow to make the make a difference, like what what's that one thing? If, a, if there's an a- actionable thing that people could take away, uh, what do they what do they need to do in these sets of circumstances? Well, uh, that's that's a very good question, uh, uh, Simon, and obviously a difficult one because uh, there's so much can, that can be done in in to 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 make a difference. But I think first of all, uh, providers need to ensure good clinical practice. Uh, so I think this is this is uh, uh, very important for for someone with distressed behaviors. Uh, multidisciplinary approach is very important that focuses on on non-pharmacological intervention as well, not just uh, medications. Um, uh, And additionally, uh, we know that when you ensure good clinical practice in someone with these challenging behaviors, it also means that the first thing you need to do is to rule out pain. So ensuring good clinical practice is very important. But I think the way that you, the the, um, uh, care providers can do that is if they if they leverage, for example, the power of technology and digitization. I think this is going to be uh, key for them uh, to enable them to uh, achieve this easier, to achieve this good clinical practice easier, and they should leverage this. Um, Embracing digital solutions, I think, is the way to go. Uh, I would focus on this on the recent Department of Health and Social Care policy paper for uh, digital health and social care. And it's interesting how they've put emphasis on, uh, amongst other things, on these three key things, which is equipping the system uh, digitally for better care. Uh, that means digitizing health and social care records. That's that's very important. Uh, enhancing the uh, the impact on, on people uh, providing the services. And that's, that includes obviously training them in the right skills. And uh, uh, obviously use the technology uh, digitization to support diagnosis and that's to improve accuracy of diagnosis. I think I think uh, thinking about the technology and digitization within this framework, I think is very positive and, and care providers should do that. And there's already, uh, Simon, examples of that happening in the UK. We have uh, uh, we have uh, providers in uh, in the UK uh, with successful integration of digital uh, solutions. In this case, Pain Check, uh, but they've in- they've incorporated Pain Check within a complex and multifaceted psychological intervention known as the Reconnect program. And they've already seen within a six months period of time, they've already seen great improvements uh, in, in terms of the outcomes as part of simply managing pain better, but also in addition, having these other psychosocial interventions as well. So they've they've seen reduction in antipsychotic use and benzodiazepine use, which we know have a lot of side effects and they affect the quality of life of their residents. But they also seen some staggering effects like uh, over 90% reduction in safeguarding events through these multi-faceted uh, uh, interventions, which also included uh, uh, pain uh, management. So I think I think this is the message for, for care providers. Brilliant. Thank you. Kreshnik, uh, always really good to, uh, to talk to you. Uh, you're, a, you're, you're a passionate man. You know your subject uh, matter uh, uh, better than probably anyone else in, uh, in, in, in the particular uh, focus that you, uh, that you have. So thank you for, for sharing your insights today. It's been really, really helpful. Uh, and I have no doubt that this will be a, a really, really valuable 
valuable piece of content for uh, for members of the Care Leaders Network. Thank you, Simon. Always a pleasure talking to you. Thanks.